Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome to Unscrewed. The show that knows that real liberation includes sexual liberation. I am your host, Jacqueline Friedman, and I am so happy to be back in a new year. And I'm especially happy to be kicking off this year of Unscrewed with my new guest, which is Lisa Wade, who you may know from the blog Sociological Images, which if you don't, you should go check it out right now. Just Google it. A professor of sociology at Occidental College. She has a brand new book out called American Hookup, which is all about the purported hookup culture on American campuses. But I promise it's not what you think. It's really about the realities of sex on campus right now and it's so smart and nuanced and not at all pearl clutchy and i'm so glad that she's here to talk with us about it lisa thank you for coming on the show oh i'm thrilled to be here i've been greedily eyeing your podcast for a long time (laughs) well this is the perfect moment because i greedily gobbled up your book but before we talk about it if you're a listener of the show you know we have to do the lightning round first so what has made you the happiest this week that's an easy answer. Uh, it, it's, it's been really fun to watch the interest start to pour in. And um, I'm gearing up for the book tour. So it's it's this joy of actually seeing all that hard work actually start to, um, to pay off. It's the best moment. I like that moment of the book, too. You know, some writers are really into the writing part, but I actually like the part where it gets to go out into the world. Yeah. What is the best sex advice you ever received? I think that one of the best things I ever realized about sex, uh, and, and a friend of mine helped me figure this out, was to stop worrying about whether they wanted me and to start asking myself if I wanted them. Yes. It is easy, especially as a woman, to get sort of obsessed with, do they want me? Why don't they want me? Um, how can I make them want me? But then once you start asking yourself, wait, do I want them? Then the answers start to get pretty interesting. Right. And that's how we'll talk about that. And that's one of the themes in American Hookup. What is the sexuality news lately that's made you the maddest or saddest? Maybe it's almost cliche at this point, but it's been really hard to watch Donald Trump have so little consequences for misogynistic and sexually predatory commentary that is so unbelievably overt. Like, that's been tough. Yeah. I mean, at least I'll still have a job for the next 10 years. (laughs) We will not have a lack of work, it's true. What's the biggest sex myth you once believed but don't believe anymore? In the process of writing the book, I came across a fact from one of the largest uh, sex studies ever done. So it's like a very, very good source of data. 
I came across a fact that really surprised me um, and is so useful. And that is that in this particular study of representative sample of tens of thousands of Americans, heterosexual men reported liking performing oral sex on women more than women reported liking to receive it. I learned this from your book, from American Hookup, and I was like, really? Yeah, like even at 42 years old, that surprised me. Yeah, we're, let's put a pin in that one too. <laughs> I don't know, we're going to come back to that. But first, I have to ask you your last lightning round question. Who's one of the bravest people that you can think of who's working to unscrew the sexual culture? If I can, I think the people that I am most impressed by are the scholars and activists and writers who are taking on sexual assault in particular. So those of you who are addressing rape culture directly and centrally and not as just sort of part of being a sexuality activist more generally, those are the people that I find most inspiring because it can be fun and sexy to talk about sexuality and you can do it in ways that are very appealing, but those writers are taking the hit for everybody else by really making that their central issue. And I admire that a lot. Can you name anyone in particular? Well, you and uh, Kate Harding, for example. Ah, Kate Harding's amazing, yes. Yeah, yeah. And there's a sociologist named Daniel Dirks who has a book that is in the works too that addresses this directly. Oh, good to know. So let's talk about your book, Lisa. It's about fucking on campus. Or not. Or not, <laughs> yes. Or whether or not one is free to not. Is a lot one of, of people questions. that are not. So let me just start by gushing a little. Like, I tire. I'm so exhausted of the whole narrative around the hookup culture for reasons that I'm sure we are about to talk about. And I was like, you know, I, I've always loved your work at Sociological Images. I'm a fan in general. But I was like, oh, what's she going to say? Like, hookup culture. I really hate how this is discussed. Like, every time I see it discussed. and But I just thought the book was so smart. And it was so nuanced, complex, and devoid of any agenda other than, like, hey, we should be giving folks the most options for the healthiest sex lives that they can have according to their own definitions and like why don't you describe just the project of the book yeah i was reading all that media coverage also and i was also teaching classes about sexuality because before i became a sociologist i got a master's degree in human sexuality so that's one of my specialties so I'm having these discussions with real students in classrooms and the discussions themselves were nuanced and complex and the students were diverse and they were responding to their environment in all kinds of interesting ways and not in thoughtless ways, right? They were, they were really being sophisticated and making careful choices about what to do and also learning really fast. And none of that was, was accounted for in the media coverage. And so I did one round of data collection where I asked students, they're all freshmen, for a whole semester to write basically a diary and turn it in every week about sex and dating on campus and friendship and that kind of stuff. And that data was so incredible and so rich that I was inspired to try to get those voices out into the world. Was there hesitance of like, 
students to basically tell their professor about their sex life? Yes, there was often hesitance. And I actually introduced the product on the very first day of class when they didn't know me at all. And so a lot of times they weren't sure that they were really interested in doing it. But over time, they a lot of them opened up. Even some of the more reticent students opened up. They got to know me better. We had more and more conversations. And they got more and more comfortable talking about it. So they didn't always start with their most harrowing um, or explicit stories, but they often sort of warmed up to them as they went. And I think it probably did help that I've been studying sexuality for so long that it's really easy for me to talk about. And frankly, a lot of them have never been able to talk to an adult about sex in any meaningful way. It's always been fraught with you're my mom or my dad or, you know, you're you're a teacher who's telling me not to get pregnant or whatever, you know. So to actually have someone who will listen, uh, who isn't judgmental and who isn't shocked by anything they say almost, um, I think they really actually blossomed under that environment. So you did this originally with one class, with one sort of group of students, and then you you did it at another school, right? You did it or a number of times. Yeah, I did it three times at two schools. And I ended up with exactly 101 students who who participated. So they could opt out of being in the book if they wanted to. And a pretty diverse range of students in terms of backgrounds. The two schools were pretty different from each other. Yep. And I got to use this incredible data set that was collected by Paula England, a sociologist who was the primary investigator, called the Online College Social Life Survey. And that had over 24,000 students at 22 institutions represented. And then there's been hundreds of research studies of many schools of hookup culture. And I looked at those as well as hundreds of firsthand accounts of hookup culture in college newspapers. So it, it ended up being, I think, a pretty good representation of what's happening all across America. So what is happening all across America? Yeah. So. The first thing to notice is that there's not nearly as much sex happening as people think there is. About a third of students will never hook up a single time. The average graduating senior has hooked up eight times. So that's once a semester. Half of those hookups are with someone they'd hooked up with before. And fewer than half include intercourse. I was going to say, how are are they defining hookup even? They don't know. (laughs) Nobody knows. It's a purposefully vague phrase. We can ask, you know, what did you do in your last hookup? And we can get some numbers about that. And about a third of the time, it's just making out, maybe getting horizontal, doing some good old groping, you know. Um, But 40% of the time, it includes intercourse. um, And then the rest of the time, it's something in between. I think that finding is so important that a lot of the misery and pressure and sort of alienation of the sexual culture on American campuses is based in mythology, right? It's like people are feeling pressured by shit that's not actually happening. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean they're not real-time miserable. Yep. I just think it's so important to like burst that bubble and say like, like campus is not in fact like a all-you-can-eat buffet of sex that everyone's eating from but you. And that's why it's important to think about it as a culture and not a behavior. Part of the place that the hookup culture, the sort of mythology that like if you're not having a ton of meaningless sex on campus you're doing it wrong part of the place that actually gets perpetuated is from adults who want to clutch their pearls about the hookup culture Mm -hmm. yep these adults who sort of purport to 
want to take care of and protect young people are actually doing an enormous amount of harm in their sort of moral panic. Particular by suggesting that monogamous relationships are where you're going to be cared about and that casual relationships can't involve care because that just gives students the excuse to be careless in all kinds of ways with their casual sex partners. You know, I certainly have done my share of sleeping around, but like haven't ever felt that kind of pressure to pretend we have no human feelings about it. Yeah. Yeah. There's this wonderful study I talk about in the book where a set of psychologists asked students what they thought their peers felt in a typical hookup. So what feelings are typical when two students hook up together? And they could name as many emotions as they wanted. Uh, The most commonly named emotion was lust. That was two thirds of students said lust, which makes sense because it's sex, right? So right. <laughs> it's appropriate that lust be part one of the emotions. Um, but the second most commonly said emotion, the answer was nothing. Not no answer, right? But nothing. We're feeling nothing. They think their peers feel nothing. Yes. So tell me what that results in. So it creates this imperative that they be um, careless about sex, that they don't care about the person they're with. It creates this kind of tricky interpersonal task where they have to perform not caring in order to establish that in this particular instance, the sex didn't mean anything. We know it means something a lot of times, but in this instance, it meant nothing. And so then in order to establish that as reality, they have all of these elaborate sets of rules that they uh, follow to try to uh, perform carelessness. And it it's kind of brutal. Like the sex should be hot, but they're not supposed to be warm with one another. So they can't do anything like sweet. Like they can't kiss in like a sweet way. They can't make eye contact. They can't hold hands. They can't do anything that feels like a caress. They can't cuddle. They're not supposed to hug after the, when they say goodbye to the person after the sex is done. Jesus Christ. (laughs) I don't know if they're supposed to shake hands or what, but um, (laughs) you are supposed to demote the person after the sexual activity such that their relationship to you is less than it was before, at least for a short time. So uh, if you were friends before, then you kind of act more like acquaintances, don't spend as much time together over the next week or two, just to kind of reestablish like nothing really happened here. Because once we've decided that sex is meaningless, then everything else carries more meaning, almost by definition. Being friendly afterward or, you know, saying, do you want to go get lunch? I mean, just like everything becomes more meaningful once sex is meaningless. And so you have to try to avoid all of those things. And, and of course, this idea of caring less, it's, it's all about caring less than the other person. Right. So you have to kind of come in below the other person in terms of how much you actually act as if you like one another. And so that creates this downward spiral. Like if you, if you and I were friends on campus and we didn't have sex, but the next day you started ignoring me, I would feel bad. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, it's going to feel bad whether you've had sex or not. But like, these are just not very natural ways of interacting. One story that's really just touches me is um, a story of a girl named Farah and her like failed launch with a guy that is, I named Teak in the book. They find each other attractive enough. She has this idea that he might be a a good match for her, but she's so tough and she's so um, invested in hookup culture and she plays the game really, really well. So they hook up and she, she comes out of it being pretending like she doesn't care at all. And then he does the same 
and there is this this game they play where every couple weeks one of them gets drunk enough and they text the other and they have a hookup and every single time she's really excited by the hookup she really likes him but then she turns it off as soon as the hookup's over at one point he yells at her that she's turning her emotions on and off with him and it's really hurting his feelings she she lets that go and she doesn't respond and She's getting very, very frustrated. And then finally, he sends her this text and says, I'm sorry, I've been such a dick. Can I come talk to you? Which is a a lot in hookup culture. Like, that's really putting yourself out in hookup culture. And he hikes up to where she is. And he, after a little bit of small talk, he asks her, do you like like me? And she looks him straight in the face and says, no. No! Yeah, And and then she talks in her journal about how just devastated she was at her own answer. And he says, basically, well, I don't like like you either. And it's obvious they both <laughs> liked each other. And she never hooked up again, actually. And she's one of the students that I actually called up after they graduated to ask them how things had gone after their first year. And she was still really raw about that experience. And she was still having a really hard time ever being open with someone she liked. She actually made me cry a little bit. And she said that she really wanted to stop being so afraid of holding hands. Oh, man. I feel like we are failing so hard. I mean, I feel like a lot of this also goes back to failing to do comprehensive sex ed before students get to college. If students had, like, better tools to talk about sex and to think about what sex is for themselves, I feel like it's such preventable misery. It is. And unfortunately, sex ed, most of the time, if students get it, is more like reproductive education, right? right? If it is more comprehensive than that, it usually focuses on pleasure. And that's good, but that's actually kind of advanced, I think, for a lot of college students. Many freshmen are three months out of high school. 50% of them are virgins when they get there. And to be like telling them, okay, here's how you have all the orgasms is kind of more than they're maybe ready for. I mean, but there's different kinds of pleasure-based sex ed. I don't mean here's how to have like awesome anal sex. I mean like teaching students that sex should be pleasurable. Yeah, but I, I would like us to be teaching them that sex should be nice. It should feel nice. (laughs) And the person should be nice to you. That's where I feel like we're missing the boat. Students do not know that if someone is horrible to them, that's not okay. And that's sort of, that's not entirely gendered, but it's, it is. Well, what you end up having is both men and women trying to perform this stereotype masculine sexuality, which includes being not very nice. Some men on campus are really, really good at it. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So you have that story in the book about Sydney, who's hooking up with this guy who calls her a bitch for not wanting to have sex without a condom. Yeah. She just responds by saying, well, okay then. And they do. They have sex without a condom. She's horrified, terrified. But she did it. And if I recall correctly, he says, like, if you don't have sex with me without a condom, I'm not going to have sex with you ever again. And then she does it. She has sex without the condom, even though she doesn't want to. And then he still doesn't ever have sex with her again. Yep. But what's interesting about that experience isn't just that he was a jerk that day, but she didn't know for sure that that wasn't allowed. You know, she she didn't get called a bitch and think like, oh, my God, who the fuck are you? Right. That disqualifies you from access to my body. Right? Yes. <laughs> Clearly, there was, it was a complicated reasons why she did it anyway. But one of the reasons is because in hookup culture, calling someone a bitch is allowed. Uh, ah, tell the story about the lick. I think it might be my favorite one. <laughs> this is so good. This is why um, I can't ever write fiction. Because, <laughs> because nonfiction is so good. So this is a story where two, two of the girls that are in the study are having a conversation about one of their hookups the night before. And the guy apparently went to go down on her, which really surprised her. And then gave her one lick, a single lick, she said, and then stopped. <laughs> and the way they recount this story is they are just laughing hysterically until their stomachs are sore about this story. But, but they're also, it's really ir- irritating as well, right? And so they talk about the fellatio cunnilingus double standard. And- right. And that thing you referenced in the lightning round where, like, actually women are... are- more disgusted by the idea of cunnilingus than men are that like the idea that women's bodies are disgusting and especially women's sexuality or sexual organs are disgusting is not just a male idea what i try to say is well sometimes cunnilingus might seem gross but the same is true of fellatio like in either case you kind of have to be in the right frame of mind to be interested in doing it you know and men are often in that right frame of mind and to think that men who are attracted to women would somehow be repulsed by by the vagina or the vulva makes very little sense because they spend a lot of time trying to get access to that body part but there's just enough like really hateful talk about women's bodies that it leaves women with a lot of insecurity about whether or not it's a good idea to let a guy go down there. Because they're worried that the guy will be disgusted, Mm -hmm. even if he wants to do it. They have a hard time sometimes accepting that that's possible. One of the interesting things that came out of this book for me is understanding how the double standard had shifted. It used to be that men had the power to kind of decide which which box to put women in and then they would have casual or um, non-committed sexual relationships with, with quote-unquote bad girls and then marry the good girls but in hookup culture all women are potentially both uh, and and men still have the power to put them in either category but the way it works is that women are considered bad until a man decides they're good because all relationships are passing through hookups 
So the first thing that happens is men and women start hooking up together. And then if they decide they're going to be in a relationship after a series of hookups, then it turns into something more committed. But in the meantime, how women are thought of by men is shifting as well. So women have to go through this period of being seen as the bad girl you hook up with. And then if they're lucky, they graduate into a period in which they're the good girl that the guy likes. And when you ask men about women's pleasure and orgasm, they say very clearly, um, I care about the orgasms of my girlfriends. I do not care about the orgasms of women I'm hooking up with. Whereas women care very much about the orgasms of the guys they're hooking up with. That's the whole point of a hookup is to give a guy an orgasm. Right. In the heterosexual pairings, like both the woman and the man agree that the point is his orgasm. Mm-hmm. Both of them emphasize that. And I, there's this one line from a bisexual man who says that when he hooks up with men, his, his goal is to give the guy an orgasm. And when he hooks up with women, his goal is to get an orgasm. And he says this very sheepishly. <laughs> you know, he recognizes that that's, that's not cool. But that's well, that brings me to the thing I was going to say. Like, we've been talking primarily about heterosexual pairings. Mm-hmm. Um, but you had some really interesting findings about how all of this really dominantly heterosexual narrative, this culture, is impacting queer students who are trying to navigate their sex lives as well. Yeah, I get asked this question a lot about how are non-heterosexual students experiencing this. And the truth is that they are experiencing it in as diverse ways as everyone else. So I had some non-heterosexual students who actually felt pretty good about hookup culture. Like they were having a great time. They didn't feel intimidated by the sort of heterocentrist party scenes. They would go anyway and they would enjoy it. Some of them were bisexual. They were hooking up with men and women. It was the best thing that ever happened to them. Other students felt differently. Um, Some of them felt like they couldn't tolerate how homophobic and masculinist uh, these environments were. Uh, Some students who identified as lesbian would say that it was really obnoxious, for example, that supposedly heterosexual women could kiss each other in public for men's approval. But if they did it, even though they were actually attracted to women, that it was considered unacceptable or bizarre in that context. So they would have these more negative experiences. And then I also had some deeply, deeply religious students who identified as non-heterosexual, who just were offended by casual sex of any kind. So they were just as diverse as everyone else. I think that one of the great, the things I appreciated about your book was that you did find some students for whom the hookup culture is working just fine, right? It's like the, the point is the homogeneity of the culture is dysfunctional, not that going about having sort of casual sex without a lot of atten- attachments is inherently bad. If it were up to me to change sex on campus, I would want to see two things, right? I would want to see a diversification in what kind of sexual engagement was seen as good or allowable or cool, (laughs) Um, just would be tolerable. Because right now, it's like, if you're not interested in hooking up, then there's something weird about you. And there's no other options for how to get together. And then the other thing I would like to see is I would like to see hookups be more caring. So we need to stop allowing casual sex to mean that nobody is accountable to anyone else's feelings at all in any way. Yeah. So how do we go about making those changes? One of the things that's so interesting about culture is that it only exists in our collective minds, right? And if we all change our mind, it disappears. It's gone. And so if enough students 
can get together on a given campus and decide we're going to do things differently from now on, then we really can change culture and we can change it fast. I'm really optimistic about what a critical mass of students could do if they really put their mind to it. But they need institutional support because culture is also something that becomes institutionalized. And campuses probably wouldn't want to advertise it, but hookup culture is institutionalized on a lot of college campuses. On most campuses, opportunities for freshmen to party like they think they're supposed to as a college student are mostly offered by large groups of men, sometimes fraternity men in fraternity houses, and sometimes men who have, like, they get together, groups of men that get together and rent these big houses and make them big party houses. And this is because we changed the age at which young people are allowed to drink in this country in 1984 or so from 18 to 21. So now when students go to campus, they can't drink in their dorms. Their college is policing them. Some of them aren't, aren't interested in taking the risk of getting a fake ID, so they can't go to bars. Sororities aren't allowed, for the most part, to throw parties with alcohol. Because like laws that would make that seem like they're running a brothel, like some really old laws. Yes, but also that the Panhellenic organizations that control sororities, they don't want their beautiful houses destroyed, and they, they don't want to pay the insurance rates. Because fraternities are paying extraordinary insurance rates because they are actually really dangerous places for students to go for all kinds of reasons. So sororities aren't interested in suddenly having to pay hundreds of dollars each month just to make sure they can have keggers. But so structurally, we have this situation in which students on lots of campuses become dependent on these large groups of men who are usually privileged men to throw these parties. And institutions are complicit in this for a number of reasons. I mean, one is because they they enjoy the publicity of being a a school where people are having a lot of fun because students will go to those schools. They are also dependent on a lot of Greek life to house students. So getting rid of Greek life would mean suddenly having a lot of students with nowhere to live and they'd have to spend a lot of money Mm. making up for that. Not to mention the fact that Greek alums tend to donate more money than other kinds of students because they're privileged to begin with. And so they would pay a financial price in terms of donations. There's all kinds of ways in which, not all, but a lot of campuses are sort of codependent with these elite all-male groups. Students then, that's where the parties are because of these other interesting laws about who can drink and when and where. And until we change those dynamics, we're only gonna see so much cultural change at the sort of mental level. I know that the guys in those houses think that emotionless casual sex is in their interest, but I'm not convinced it's in their interest either. What keeps them convinced that it's in their interest? Is that just sort of about undoing toxic masculinity at its root, or is there something else at play there? I mean, the the interesting thing about gender in America right now, more generally, is that feminists wanted a couple things, right, in the 1970s. They wanted women to have access to male spheres of life. The being a female body didn't inhibit your life options, right? And then they also wanted um, us to value the things that women had been doing for the last hundred years. The first thing is about sexism. We wanted to stop being biased against female-bodied people. But the other thing in sociology we call androcentrism, and that's the idea that everything feminine is less valuable than everything masculine. We've actually done some good work slowing down or or interrupting sexism in this country, but 
we're actually more androcentric now than we were in the 1950s. We are more valuing of masculinity and more devaluing of femininity than we have been in a very, very long time. So when we look at like men, men's and women's lives in America right now, women actually have a lot more choices as, as individuals because we like it when they do feminine stuff and we like it when they do masculine stuff because masculine stuff is good, right? right. So women as individuals have all of these choices about how to build their lives and how to build their personalities. Men, on the other hand, are constrained into masculine things because masculinity is good, but femininity is only good for chicks. So you have to avoid that, at least theoretically. So we're boxing men into a smaller, smaller box. But the box we box them into is where all of the power and prestige and money is. Right. That's how we police the box. Exactly. I have this story in the book. I'm so grateful to this student for telling me this story. He was kind of a part of one of these groups of men, friendship groups of men that were pretty invested in hookup culture. And he called it a hostile environment. He did not mince words. He said that, first of all, there was this imperative to hook up with as many women as you can. And then there was the fact that you would get teased relentlessly if you hooked up with women that your guy friends thought were worthless. So this is a contradiction. Hook up with everybody, but only elusive hot women that are seen as worthwhile by your buddies. Elusive hot women who haven't had too much sex. Uh-huh. So he tells the story of his friend Simon who comes in and he's like sort of embarrassed about this girl he'd hooked up with the night before because he knows his friends think she's ugly. And he, he probably didn't think she was ugly, but he knew his friends did. And sure enough, they like gave him hell for having hooked up with this girl uh, because apparently if a woman is considered unattractive, then she'll sleep with anyone. And so it's, it doesn't require any game to get her. So the next night then he hooks up with this girl that he knows his buddies think is attractive. And when he comes and brags about that, sure enough, they're like, oh, awesome, good job. But then when he leaves and my student uh, is still, still sitting there, they start asking whether or not this girl is easy and gets around. Yep. And again, if, if you're easy and you get around, it doesn't require any game to get you. And so she didn't count either. And my student, Corey, is like watching these dynamics going like, how the hell do you win this? And there is actually a strategy to win this that's very disturbing. But the point of this story is that for the men who are in those social circles, that pressure to sort of hook up and hook up correctly can be really intense and really threatening. Well, what's the strategy to win? The strategy to win is when a guy hooks up with a girl that he knows his buddies think is worthless, he treats her like she's worthless. And when he comes back to tell the story, he says, oh, I hooked up with this girl, but don't worry, I gave her what she had coming. It also incentivizes guys to violate consent, to rape. Yep. And to not care about women's pleasure and to generally treat them in degrading and disrespectful ways. The guys say that when they hook up with women that seem elusive, high status women, they treat them much better. It's when they hook up with low status women that women that their buddies think is low status. Those are the women they treat badly because that's how they get around getting hell for hooking up with a low status woman is saying, oh yeah, yeah, no, I know. I know she's a dog. I treated her like a dog. You would have been so pleased with what I did to her. Like, how do we get women to see that like, 
if they stick together and refuse to sleep with the assholes, like the game will change entirely. I think it, we could do it if we could just convince women that men's approval and attention is not that valuable. Right. Dick is abundant and low value. Dick is abundant and low value. Yeah, yeah, exactly. If we could just convince women of that and simultaneously convince them that women are valuable people and that if all you do your whole time in college is have a wonderful time with your girlfriends, that's good. And we have to convince them that we're not against casual sex per se. We can't have those deeper conversations if they think we're coming at them with judgment. No, absolutely. Really understanding and internalizing the idea that you deserve to be treated well, no matter what kind of sex you're having who, and who you're having it with. And this is something I'd actually like parents to hear because so many parents think that romantic monogamous relationships are safer, mm. emotionally safer for their children. And they're not, right? Because monogamous committed relationships are the site for spousal abuse and intimate partner homicide and you know marital rape and there's nothing inherently safe about monogamy but more importantly if we allow the myth to persist that monogamy is the only context in which sex is about caring for one another then that gives permission to people to be terrible to each other in every other sexual context what I would love parents to tell their young adult children is it doesn't matter what kind of sex you're having or who that person is to you. They have to be nice to you. Yes. They have to be nice to you. That is like such a lovely, really basic. Yes. <laughs> that's the whole, that's the rest is details. They have to be nice to you. I'll change my subtitle. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, everyone listening to the sound of my voice, you should go buy American Hookup right now. Buy it digitally, buy it from your local bookstore. If you must buy it from Amazon, leave a review. Buy it, however you buy books. But once they've got your book, are you coming to a town near them? I will be in New York and Boston and DC, Seattle, Los Angeles, and the San Francisco Bay Area at minimum. They can look at my website, which is lisa-wade.com. Excellent. And I should mention the Boston event is with yours truly. Yes, I'm so excited. Uh, and where else can people follow you online? Are you on social medias? Yes, I'm on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. And uh, so it's pretty easy to find me in all those places. And there's links from my website as well. Uh, and so is Sociological Images, the, the blog that I write which you should definitely also check out. And you can find me at Jacqueline F, J-A-C-L-Y-N-F on Twitter and Facebook. On Instagram, I'm Jacqueline Fable because that is how I roll. And you can find a conversation about this show and all our past shows on the hashtag Unscrewed on Twitter. If you want to talk with Lisa and myself, uh, definitely use the hashtag. Uh, we'd love to chat further with you. I'm sure I can speak for Lisa on that. You can also find me and all the stuff I'm up to on my website, which is JacquelineFriedman.com. Friedman is F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N. Send me stuff. Send me ideas for future shows. I'm, I'm planning out the next season right now. Send me your questions, your advice questions to get answered by myself and a future guest. 
tell me what you think of the show. Email me at unscrewed at JacquelineFriedman.com. You can tweet at me. I love hearing from listeners. You can find Unscrewed wherever you like to listen to podcasts, iTunes, Acast, Stitcher. If there's a platform you listen to and I'm not there, let me know and I will get myself there. Um, while you're in iTunes, please give us five stars and a review. That's how you help everyone find the show. Uh, and make sure you're subscribed wherever you subscribe. You don't want to miss out on future episodes. I've got some pretty cool stuff cooking. This show is produced and edited by yours truly, Jacqueline Friedman. The in and out music is by the Pink Tiles, and the cover art is by Nicole Dodonna and was designed in collaboration with the establishment who also designed the sound cues. Until next week, I am wishing you safe and happy sex lives. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.